Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. As we continue our study in the book of Galatians, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 today. We're going to be finishing up Galatians in the next few weeks, and we're going to be moving into a study of the book of Hosea, um, which should be a good time. And so I encourage you uh, not only to keep up our study in Galatians, obviously, but if you're looking for what should I read next in God's word, well, Hosea would be a great place for you to read and reread uh, because it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting book and it's going to be a challenge also for us. But we're up for the challenge. And so I'm, I'm excited to be preaching through that in the coming weeks uh, after we finish Galatians. So, again, just for your personal study. But today we have Galatians 5 before us. And so before we go to it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you help us to recognize it as such. It is holy. It is not like the other things that we read. It is not your little instruction book for our lives. It is the holy words of a holy God. They are given to us because you are a good God. And you want us to know what it is we ought to believe about you and how we ought to be as believers. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would teach us just that. What is it that we should know about you from your word today? How ought we to behave concerning the words here before us? Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Change us that we might be transformed in the renewing of our mind. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Several years ago, when we were still living out in the county, some of you guys remember our place out there on 70 West, and there was a tree in my neighbor's yard, and uh, it just stopped producing leaves one year. And he and I were out in the front yard talking about it, and I mentioned that I thought that his tree had died, and he figured it was just skipping a year, was his, was his terms. I'm sorry. It's hard not to let. Just skipping a year this year, just taking a year off of leaf making. Who knows, that's what a plant does. But I was pretty sure that leaves don't do that, um, or that trees don't do that, but I just went on, and we went on, and a few years came and went, and that tree never grew leaves again. Skipping several years, it did start producing mushrooms at its base, which is another good sign of something else. Uh, well, one day a storm came, and wouldn't you know it, it blew that tree over, and it fell on partially onto my driveway. Thankfully, it didn't do any damage. The trunk was so rotten that you could literally grab, reach in and grab handfuls of the tree trunk uh, out of there, which I did. I demonstrated for my neighbor when it was over in my driveway. It had been years, years that that tree had been dead, but it seemed like, well, maybe it was just skipping a few years, right? Maybe it was just taking the year off from producing leaves and doing what trees do. On our text today, Paul is speaking of this idea of a tree bearing fruit, and he uses it as the symbol to represent the Christian life. Of course, our Lord Jesus did this many times, and so Paul is picking up that same idea He gives us a few nice lists, which we like lists. They're helpful. 
But the real meat of the passage comes from the idea that the Spirit of the Lord that lives inside the believer is only ever capable of producing a certain kind of fruit. Similarly, the fallen flesh of man is also only capable of producing a certain kind of product. And though there is a war between the two inside the believer, the new nature that we have in Christ and the flesh that we still have, the spirit will always win out and will always demonstrate itself. So as we get into the text today, we'll see this idea and how we'll, and we'll see how the believer ought to live in light of this. So we'll divide this into three main ideas. First, the desires of the flesh, then the desires of the spirit, and then finally, the desire for unity. So with that, let's look together at the text, Galatians 5, verses 19 through 26. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 5, starting at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So for a little bit of context, where we're at in the book of Galatians, last week we talked about the idea that as Christians we are free in Christ. It's been a very common theme throughout the book of Galatians. And we are free not to sin, that's not the freedom that we have, but to serve one another and to obey the Lord. We have that kind of freedom. Freedom to sin, in fact, represents a different kind of prison, right? Never being free of the flesh that we war against. We should, we should be free from that flesh, right? In Christ, we have declared, we are declared free from it, so then we should walk by the Spirit, which we have been instructed to do, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. So today, we'll get a more detailed characterization of what walking by the Spirit and gratifying the desires of the flesh, those two extremes, look like. There are a few lists like this in the Scriptures, and apparently they were pretty common in ancient literature, at least that's what the commentators tell me. I don't read a whole lot of ancient literature. Uh, but apparently this kind of list was pretty normal for that time. So it shouldn't surprise us because these lists are common today, are they not? In fact, we use them today in some context within the church. Sometimes that's a good context. Sometimes they're not so good context. And you probably could tell me examples of both. Whatever the case, we tend to like lists, but we should always be careful with them. They are helpful, but they are usually not exhaustive. In fact, they're just never exhaustive. 
If you compare this list that we have today with other lists like it in Scripture, you'll note their similarities, but you'll also note their differences. And it has nothing to do with different authors. In fact, the three lists that we find in the New Testament are written by the same man. It has nothing to do with that, or it has nothing to do with the contradictions about the teaching therein. It just has to do with the fact that any list like this could just go on and on, and you could never really get to the bottom of it. If you want really exhaustive lists, look at the larger catechism. The writers of the larger catechism tried to cover all the bases, and some of the answers are very lengthy as a result of that. The point being made is that a Christian will tend to exhibit Christ-like traits, whereas the unbeliever cannot and will persist in those works of the flesh. And that brings us to the first point, the desires of the flesh. Look with me at the first part of verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. What do we mean here? We all know what that means. I want to make sure we know what that means. They're evident. The opposite of that is that they would be cryptic, right? The works of the flesh are not cryptic, meaning that you don't have to look hard to find them, which is very important for us as believers, just like the tree that stopped making leaves. It wasn't really hard to figure out what was going on there. I make this point for us to understand that we shouldn't go looking for this kind of thing in Christians. What I mean is that we shouldn't be hunting for sins in people's lives, like a kind of witch hunt. That's not the purpose of what we've been put here for. Lots of bad things happen when Christians start turning over every every single leaf in order to find sins in the lives of others. Rather, we should spend time examining our own hearts. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't deal with evident sin in the lives of other Christians. That's one of the, the works of the church. It's one of the jobs of the church to do that. But we shouldn't always be on the hunt for them. It's a completely different sort of thing. People who spend their time doing that usually have something that they're trying to hide themselves. Just thought I'd mention that. When Paul goes through a list of things, we should spend we should spend some time here on this list, right, talking about them. But we aren't going to tease apart every single word. The English translations, I think, are pretty helpful here. But you'll notice that you could group them basically into two groups. There are sins that are against God, and there are sins that are against others, and there are some that kind of blend into both of those. Ultimately, any sin, just to make sure we understand, any sin is against God, but some sins are directly against others. Like the the person that we're committing against is the one that feels the first brunt of that, breaking that commandment to love our neighbors. Other sins are more against God directly, right? Breaking the command to love him with our soul, our mind, and our strength. There are several that fit into the category first of sexual sin, which really fits into both categories, sins against God and sins against men. Sexual sin is basically defined as any sexual activity outside the context of a biblical marriage, and that sentence alone eliminates myriad activities that Christians for millennia have been trying to justify in some way. Even seeing idolatry and sorcery next to this, which may seem a little strange, Right? Why'd they throw idolatry and sorcery into that? Throwing them next to the sexual sins. Well, it makes a lot of sense if you read through Israel's history, right? Where they were constantly tied up into idolatry, which often blended itself with sorcery of these other pagan gods. We've been going through Judges, we went through Isaiah, we've seen plenty of that as we've gone 
through as they worshiped all the different fertility gods. And so it ties it directly into that. These types of sins aren't always clearly evident, meaning just looking, you can't see them, but their ultimate outworkings definitely are, right? And you see this in society with the sins of abortion, adultery, homosexuality, being kind of the end game of what we would call sexual sins. These aren't just sins against others, but they're primarily against God who demands holiness in his temple. And for the Christian, the body is the temple of God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living in each of us. Others fit more directly into the sins against our neighbor. They tend to be apparent to everyone except for the one who is actively committing them. It's funny, we talked about this in Judges 9 this morning. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and so forth. These kinds of are plain, again, to everyone who is experiencing them, often not very plain to the person who's committing them. Typically, the person who represents those things is in the dark about their own behavior. This isn't much different than one committing sexual sin either, as they are usually trying to justify their behavior in some way. The angry and divisive person usually thinks that they're never wrong, or if they do, you'll never hear them actually admit to the fact that they're wrong. And they usually leave a trail of destruction in their wake everywhere they go. You can almost just trace the trail, like literally. Notice Paul's warnings about this list in general in verse 21. As I warned you, or I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is sometimes for us as believers, this is pretty scary for us to read, right? Admittedly, you might have read this and think, so if I do one of these, am I going to lose my salvation, right? That's, that's a pretty common belief. It's a fairly common one uh, in a lot of churches. And were it not for the testimony of the rest of Scripture, of course, it might be easy to think that. But we have the rest of Scripture to help us to understand the believer will persevere to the end, right? As Jesus said, that those who are drawn to the Father will also be raised up in the last day. Christ doesn't lose any of those that he came to die for. We can't imagine him coming to die for one and then being like, I don't really think I want that one after all. So the believer has nothing to fear. So what is he talking about here? Those who are doing such things or those who are practicing them would be another way of translating this, meaning that the person who continues to do them with no repentance, no recognition that such behaviors are indeed behaviors of the flesh, seeing them as perfectly normal behaviors. Someone who says that they're a believer yet continues to persist in unrepentant sexual immorality is evidently not a believer. Evidently, right? Someone who is continually divisive, creates struggle everywhere they go, with no repentance, shows themselves to be a worker of iniquity rather than a worker of righteousness. It just makes sense, right? A tree bears its fruit. As we see this against the upcoming list of the, the fruits of the Spirit, 
It becomes more clear of what we are talking about. If someone is evidently an unbeliever, they will be doing those things that are evidently works of the flesh. It shouldn't surprise us that a dead tree doesn't make leaves. And the opposite of true, the opposite is true for the believer, which brings us to the next point, the desires of the Spirit. Look at me at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I remember as a kid in VBS doing this kind of hanging mobile thing. Like we had a literal like coat hanger and we cut out fruits and string and all this stuff. I just love crafts. They're so much fun. And they had all the verses on them. Or, uh, and these, this, uh, this sort of thing makes a really good topical study. You've probably all been through one of them where they kind of walk through each of the fruits of the Spirit and talk about them and that how each are important and it's a perfectly fine and worthwhile study. Absolutely. Not saying it's not. I've also heard people labor really long about how it's really just singular fruit or the, that love is the fruit of the Spirit and everything works out from those and, I don't, you know, the very plain reading is really all we need here. We don't need to go into a lot of uh, silliness here. The reason that we have these contrasting lists is so that we can understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, the deep contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. That's it. The change is deep on all levels. It affects the very nature of the individual, right? In Christ, we have a new nature. We are a new creation. Consider the fall of man. Consider what we lost. What were we created? And in God, who, who were we created, right? We were created as an image of God. And in the fall, we are fallen image bearers. With that, we are no longer able to demonstrate that fruit of being an image bearer. Instead, we, we demonstrate the fruits of sin. But in Christ, what happens to us in Christ, we are changed. We are made new. We are a new creation. We are now able to act as if indeed we are the image bearers of God. We demonstrate that most when we do those attributes that we share with him. Think about that. Think about the attributes of God. And then look at this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Why do we love at all? Well, the Scriptures tell us that we love because He first loved us. How can I experience joy? Well, we're able to be joyful because God first took great joy. When he saw his creation and his covenant people, he took, he takes great joy now even in his covenant people. How can I even know what peace is? Because I worship the Prince of Peace. We are patient. Why, how can I possibly be patient? Because we have a God who is infinitely patient with us and we could just keep going on. You understand where I'm going with this. These are called fruits of the Spirit because God, the Holy Spirit, has each one of these attributes in His own character. Each member of the Godhead, in fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shows 
these attributes in a perfect and complete way. So it stands a reason then that the image bearers of God would show this, especially those like us who have been restored in Christ. And then just reread, go back to 19 and through 21 and reread that list again, that, that list of works of the flesh. What do those things have to do with the works of the spirit, with the fruits of the spirit? Imagine seeing this great big bowl of fruit, right? Or like one of those edible arrangements, you know, imagine, imagine getting one of those nice edible arrangements of like watermelon cut out to be like bears and stuff. And you get this nice, beautiful thing that you're supposed to be good. And right in the middle of it is just a rotten apple. And you wouldn't want to eat any of it, right? You'd be like, why is that there? It doesn't even belong there. It doesn't make any sense, right? That's why when we read 24, when we read the end of verse 24, or just verse 24 in general, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, crucified all 2019 through 21, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, we have put those things to death. They have no home in the life of a believer. And so this is a difficult thing, right? This is a difficult truth for us because we all know our own hearts. First and foremost, we know our own tendencies to drift back into those works of the flesh. We know that while we demonstrate the fruits of the spirit, we also show the works of the flesh because of this battle that's going on inside of us. And I think there's a really good passage to help us understand this. We find this in Luke chapter 3. So turn there with me. Luke chapter 3 is a great place to take someone when they ask that kind of question. You know what? What, what are, you know, if, uh, if someone who claims to be a believer and they're not acting like it, well, well, here, take them here. John the Baptist did not um, mince words at all. In his preaching, he's offering uh, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness just to give you some context. And he's preaching and he's offering a baptism of repentance, both to Jews and Gentiles alike. And he has the crowd a bit scared, right? Because John the Baptist probably wasn't the most gentle looking man. And, uh, and then he was preaching that preaching to them and calling them names. And so Luke chapter three, starting at verse seven. And we'll read through verse 9. I'll read a little bit more in a minute. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. What a way to start a sermon. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. It's a great opening for a sermon. Just like Paul is saying to the Judaizers, right? This whole book has been about this. And the Galatian churches, your, your Jewishness has nothing to do with it. Let's see fruit that demonstrates your repentance. The baptism that he's offering is just a sign. 
But true faith always shows itself. And John knows what's going on in the crowd and how they must feel this kind of this kind of tension, right? Well, I know the way my heart feels and I know what you're asking me to do. And so he goes on, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, right? There's this question. It's a question that we all have. What shall we do? And he answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, What should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. This is exactly what we'd expect, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you say that you have faith, then go and show that you have faith. Go do the things that you ought to be doing. Do things that are expected as one who says, I have the Spirit of God in me. Do that then. And he is sure to explain to them, look, this baptism is just symbolic. It looks forward to the one who would baptize them with the Spirit, as he goes on. And when he came, when he comes, Jesus is going to divide the wheat from the chaff. Let's read that real quick just to, just to bring it to a close. This is verses 15 through 17 there in Luke 3. And the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, whose strap, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you. This is Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I get into conversations a lot with people over their friends or their loved ones concerning their salvation, right? Particularly in this part of the country when everybody's been to VBS at least once. And most people have walked down the aisle and said a prayer in a church somewhere. And most people probably have a Bible that has a date written in it, right? And so people will come to me because many years have passed. And lots of water under the bridge since that date was written down. And they'll ask me concerning their loved ones. Are they saved? Typically one of two situations. They either come from a belief system that not denies the eternal security of the believer and they're concerned about their loved ones getting right with God is kind of the way that they'll say it or, or being rededicated or something like that. Or the other extreme, which is this kind of position that's a, a once saved, always saved kind of position, which we, of course, do believe in the eternal security of the believer, but not quite to the extreme that they would say that that, that person has said a prayer and they wrote down uh, their, that date in their Bible when they were seven, but now they're 47 and they haven't lived or like the Lord or lived with the Lord and haven't even darkened the door of a church in 30 years. And they'll think, well, they must be safe, right? Because they did the thing that one time, even though they've never demonstrated once that they were a child of God. These kinds of questions are never easy, ever. We want nothing more than to see that loved one come to know Jesus, Right? We want nothing more than to see our family member come to know the Lord. Absolutely, that's what we want. So the way that I answer this question, that are, are they saved, is like this. Look at their life. 
Do they bear fruits in keeping with repentance? Do they demonstrate that they are no longer practicing the works of the flesh, but are they showing the fruits of the Spirit? You will know a tree by its fruit, our Lord said. Someone who chooses to live in an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle does not know Jesus. But neither does someone who pretends to do good, but inside they are rotten to the core. Ultimately, we must examine our own hearts, and that's the purpose of this. It's not to go finger-pointing, because that does no one no good. Examine your own hearts. Those who are here today do that. There are times when it's necessary for a church to deal with sin in its own membership. Absolutely, that's true. But most of the time, those things can be taken care of in the context of healthy, biblical relationships and shepherding. A Christian knows when they're wrong and they turn from it and they repent. And they're not afraid of repentance because they know the God that we worship. An unbeliever is afraid and will not repent. We do not help one another when our sinful desire is to rise above those that we deem less than ourselves. And we use this, this kind of one-upmanship in the church. And Paul addresses that exactly as we move on. That brings us to the last point, the desire for unity. Look with me at verses 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. You may be thinking, well, what? What is he putting that here for? What is this? What is what's going on here at the end of this fruit of the spirit? He's telling us not to do this. That we that we wouldn't become conceited. That those who walk in the spirit, that this isn't an opportunity. Because I now have these things called goodness and patience and self-control and others, because I now have them, this isn't an opportunity for me to become conceited. Look at me, seeking my own glory. When we do that, what happens? Well, we provoke one another. We create opportunities for envy. People who do this know exactly what they're doing. I've had times in my life, and you you all can totally recognize this, I, I know, I've had times in my life where another believer has spoke over and over about all the wonderful things that they're doing, highlighting their, their accomplishments, their abilities, never once giving glory to God. And each time my feelings have been, why can't I do those things? Why am I not feeling that way about my relationship with the Lord? Why can't I be as good as them and show my faith like they do? Obviously, there's some sin in my own life when I ask those questions, right? Attempting to measure to man's standard rather than God's. Yet I can't help but think how many others have felt the same way. I'd ask you to raise your hands, but I know that every one of you have felt that way from time to time. How a person that never once gives glory to God can somehow provoke the rest of us to feel like we're not quite measuring up or doing enough. As we seek to keep in step with the Spirit, brothers and sisters in Christ, ask yourself, how am I doing this? How am I building others up in doing this? Or am I just seeking to build myself up? Speaking of how wonderful you are doesn't build others up. In fact, it does the opposite. It provokes them, creates envy. Rather, build up the one who built up each one of us from death to life. Consider Jesus who rejected offers to become king 
Remember, they would have made him king, but he said no. Instead, he became a criminal. He was hung on a cross between two other criminals so that the real criminals, you and I, could be called joint heirs with the very Son of God. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Who is it then, brothers and sisters in Christ, who is it that deserves any acclaim, any renown? Who is it that deserves our praise? Jesus, that's it. Note here, all of these great attributes are not called the fruit of the believer because they don't come from us. We are empty nothings without God in our lives, but with him, we can demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. And we only have him to thank for any good that happens in us. Remember, we we quote from Ezekiel 36, we have it out there on the board, that he will put his spirit in us and cause us to walk in his ways. The good that we do isn't even the good that I do. It's the good that Christ does through me. Were it not for him, we wouldn't know any goodness. But now because of him, we can love one another in Christ. We can love the world in Christ. For the unbeliever here, who's still practicing these works of the flesh, note again the warning of verse 21. I'll read it again so you can hear it. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember the warning of John the Baptist. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, he said that the unrepentant, that, that of the unrepentant, that Jesus stands with the winnowing fork in his hand and with it he'll throw the chaff into unquenchable fire. The only hope for salvation then is to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Rather than face him in judgment, bow at his feet today. Repent and believe. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us put away the works of the flesh. This is a daily task that we are doing, and it will see its completion only when we are with Him finally. So let us keep in step with the Spirit, bearing fruits, keeping with repentance, and let us teach these things to a lost and dying world so that they would know Jesus and call upon His name. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read here your words, we find difficulty in them because we know the struggles of our own hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that we would rest in you, that we would not rest upon our own righteousness, that we would not feel the need to collect righteousness in order to build up that we might one day match you. We already do. Because we have your righteousness now. You became sin that we might have the righteousness of God. So Lord, help us to rest in that. And not only that, but help us to preach that word to a lost world who needs you desperately. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.